Well, if you brought your Bible with you or look at it on your phone, however you read God's Word, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 11 today. We're going to be talking about the meaning of baptism. And as I was uh, preparing for the message today, I was remembering back to the year 1993. 1993 was a big year for Tammy and I. It started with the birth of our oldest daughter in May. In July, because of uh, the birth of our oldest daughter, the Holy Spirit started working on me, and I accepted Christ as my Savior in July. And Tammy followed me in September in that decision. And then it's New Year's Eve. And between there and then, we also got married. Between, uh, our, it was New Year's Eve, and we were at the watch night service at our church. And it was almost midnight, and Tammy and I were standing in line um, with a whole lot of people waiting to be baptized. Our first church was a fairly large church. It exceeded almost 1,000. They had a built-in baptistry. It would have been like back here, it would have been about right here. He kind of walked up the stairs here, went in, went out that way. And um, so everybody could watch you get baptized after you gave a brief testimony. And this whole idea of being baptized as an adult was new to me. I grew up Lutheran. Tammy grew up Catholic. So we were all baptized as infants. We didn't really understand the biblical meaning of baptism and what it represents to the Christian. And many people here may have had a similar experience. Maybe you were baptized as an infant. And you're wondering why we're baptizing um, teenagers and adults now. So we're going to spend a little bit of time this morning going through this ordinance of the church and explain from a biblical point of view, and even more importantly, how Jesus viewed it and practiced it during his time here on earth and throughout his ministry and how his followers in the early church did it. So in your Bibles, turn to chapter, Matthew chapter 3. And in the beginning of Matthew chapter 3, we get introduced to a very interesting person. It's a man named John. No, not me. John the baptizer. John is Jesus' first cousin, who for the last several years has traveled throughout Israel proclaiming Jesus' coming. He is the Elijah that was prophesied in the Old Testament. And he is the forerunner of Messiah, announcing that he is coming. And John was not a politically correct person at all. He had a very brash way about him. He infuriated the political establishment and the political power of his time. In fact, he called the religious leaders snakes and vipers and routinely called out the sin of the political leaders of his time. And the reason we're talking about him this morning is because John is the first person to use this thing called baptism um, in the New Testament especially. And that's where we're going to start out today by looking at what John said about this idea of baptism. So Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 11. John said, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, 
I need to be baptized by you, and, and you're coming to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. Verse 16, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, the heaven was opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son with whom, with him, or whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And Father, as we dig into the biblical truth of baptism this morning, I ask, Father, that you just cement it into our hearts, the dedication, the religious zeal that we need to follow you, especially in these last days. Father God, I ask, Lord, that you just touch us through the reading and preaching of your word this morning. I ask this in your name. Amen. So today, before we go downstairs to baptize our two candidates, I thought it's um, important to learn about baptism, about its biblical meaning and, and its meaning throughout history. So we're going to start off with the theology behind baptism. So the first question we ask is, who should be baptized? Is it infants or is it adults? Now, I'm not meaning to... to rain on anybody's parade or criticize anybody's um, deeply held beliefs, but I'm just going to see what the Bible and church history had to say. And here in the Cooley region, I know that we have the very large Lutheran representation. Majority of Lutherans believe in infant baptism. But let me explain how we got here, because infant baptism is not seen in the Bible. It was not seen in the early church prior to 325. So after about 325 A.D., Christianity ceased being a religion that could get you killed in the Roman Empire. Constantine came to power. He made Christianity one of the state religions. And after that, instead of being a, a whole lot of separate churches governed by apostles, they became the official religion of the state. The Over the next few hundred years, the church leadership, authority, and power was centralized primarily in Rome with a small contingent over in Constant Constantinople, which became the Eastern Orthodox Church. But the Roman Catholic Church started out in the city of Rome. And one of the unfortunate things, in my opinion, that happened during this time is that they institutionalized Christianity. They made it into a religion and kind of put it on paper to make it make sense to, to people, I guess. And what, what I mean by that is that they stopped focusing on people having a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And instead, put a whole lot of, of ritual, a whole lot of, of governmental kind of things in there, and changed it to a relationship with God, to having a relationship through the church, through a priest, who, and then through a pope. And one of the things they did was change the idea of baptism from being something you did after you accept Christ yourself to something that we introduce people into Christianity, into the church. And if you were not a member of the church, you could not do business, you could not really even really live in that area unless you were a member of the church. So this idea of infant baptism was born around that time and it survived even through Martin Luther's reformation in the 1500 that launched the Protestant churches. 
However, beginning in the 1800s, the Methodist movement was born. The Methodist movement turned more back to the Bible and the early church fathers who said, well, they never baptized infants. They, they, people were baptized after they came to faith in Jesus Christ. And the Assemblies of God picked that up in the early 1900s and started practicing baptism the way that Jesus and the disciples and the early church fathers practiced it. John tells us here in the Bible what baptism is meant to symbolize for us. For the new Christian, baptism is meant to symbolize us turning away from our old evil lifestyle, which is what repentance is. When we talk about repentance, it literally means to turn. It means I am going this way, and this way is a bad way, and I repent, and I'm going to turn around and head toward God. That's what repentance literally means in the Bible. So when we turn away from our life of sin and turn toward Jesus and follow him, Baptism is the first step of obedience in doing that after we make that decision. It is also symbolic of us following Jesus Christ into the grave of our old life and being risen into our new life with him. And I thought about an interesting way of illustrating this. How many pictures and paintings of caterpillars have you seen? Like hardly any, right? People don't have pictures of caterpillars in their home. But how many pictures of butterflies do you see? Lots, right? I mean, people see butterflies. They put it on their Facebook, social media. Um, if there's a butterfly festival somewhere, people go out and flock and see that. Tammy and I got to see something like this in Washington State. We went there in 2002 to see my sister graduate from high school. And it was a butterfly preserve, and you could walk in to this, like, greenhouse area, and literally thousands of butterflies would come and, like, land on you. I mean, it was, it was really kind of cool, you know, just having all these butterflies. You had monarchs, every color butterfly you could imagine, just come and land on you, and, and they, you know, just flying around you. It was just really, really cool. And I thought, I thought of that, and then I thought... Well, how many people would lay down and allow themselves to be covered with hundreds of caterpillars? I mean, that, that'd, be, that'd be kind of gross, wouldn't it? <laughs> I mean, these things are, when you really look up close of a caterpillar, it's kind of scary looking, especially the face. It looks like something that's at you. I mean, it's just, it's not really a cute creature at all. But you know what? All butterflies start out as caterpillars. A big, ugly, worm-like creature that has that hideous face. But you know what? That's us before we come to Jesus. We're caterpillars living in the dirt, doomed to essentially be a food source for other animals. That is until the caterpillar enters a cocoon. In a cocoon, they're radically changed and become one of nature's most beautiful creatures. That's a picture of salvation to us, of exactly what happens when we come and make Jesus our Lord, God, Savior, and King. It takes us from our dirt existence of sin and turns us into a thing of beauty before God. This is what baptism represents to us. It's a visual representation of the cocoon to the caterpillar. 
Its purpose is to show this world the transformation that happens when a sinner comes to Jesus Christ and Jesus makes them new. He makes them beautiful and He makes them into a child of God. And not only does He do that, but John the Baptist said that God Himself will baptize us with the Holy Spirit and fire. What does that mean? That means that the Shekinah glory, that word Shekinah means the all-encompassing glory. It's like being put into the middle of the sun and seeing that brightness. That glory is available to us through the Holy Spirit coming upon us when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's available to us 24-7, 365 from the day of our salvation to the end of to the end of everything and throughout all eternity. And that should get us excited because that's the kind of power we need to live during these days. We need that kind of anointing. We need that kind of power to stand before the onslaught of wickedness that's coming and is already here. Because it's only going to get tougher to live as a believer of Jesus. But I don't say this to make you afraid. We should not be afraid. Fear not. We need to view it as the Apostle Paul did. You remember the Apostle Paul? The guy that was flogged numerous times. He was beaten, imprisoned, shipwrecked, stoned to death, and resurrected, and eventually beheaded for his faith. What did he call it? He said, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. These are just light and momentary afflictions. Let, let me paraphrase that a little bit. Paul's saying the devil can't throw anything at me that will darken the glory, the presence, and provision of God in my life. There's nothing he can put, it, put at you that's going to do that. We're not going to talk a lot about that this morning, but in the next several weeks we're going to talk a lot about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And the importance of the spiritual gifts, not only in our personal lives, which is very important, but even in the life of our church here. But more about that in the coming weeks. So back to the scripture in Matthew chapter 3. In verse 14, John recognizes the sinless nature of Jesus and objects to baptizing him. I mean, imagine you know exactly who Jesus is and he's asking you to baptize him. I mean... Wouldn't you say the same thing John did? I mean, I, I'd be like, um, Lord, uh, no. <laughs> I mean, John was saying, you have nothing to repent of, Jesus. You're sinless. You're perfect. You should be baptizing me. But Jesus said, I need to do this to fulfill all righteousness. What did he mean by that? Jesus was baptized, even though he was sinless, to identify with us. Jesus was saying, here I am, a human man. All the, the fullness of the deity in bodily form. I need to do this to set an example for those who follow me, to identify with them, and to be their champion. Now, how many people remember in history class or anything like that, this idea of a champion? Let me give you an example. Remember Goliath? Goliath was the Philistine champion. Goliath went out and boasted and said, I am the utter, biggest, baddest guy in this army, 
any one of you can defeat me, we'll surrender immediately. He goes, instead of us coming, bringing two armies together, clashing in the middle, hundreds dying, it'll just be two people, your champion, my champion. And it'll be decided right there. Jesus is our champion. This is what Jesus does for us. This is why he was baptized, because he was taking upon himself that identity as a human being. So I ask everyone here a question, here and on the podcast. If you're hesitating with going through being baptized since you've become a Christian, I would ask you why. Because Jesus did it. He did it as an example for all of us. And we should follow him as his disciples. So this begs the question, how do you baptize a person? Do we do it by sprinkling or we do it by immersion? Well, the Greek word baptismal means to submerge, submerge, or make fully overwhelmed, i.e. fully wet. That's the exact Strong's um, definition of it. Remembering, we're also symbolizing following Jesus into the grave. That's a symbolism of going all the way under the water and then rising back up into a new life with him. And that's why we practice immersion baptism. Now a small caveat, in certain circumstances where it's not possible, you do the best with what you can. When I was a chaplain in Kenosha, I was called to a bedside of a terminally ill man that wanted to talk to a pastor. And I found out after talking to him and his family that he had grown up in the church. But he had left in his teenage years and never came back. He's now was 35 with end-stage cancer. With only a day or two left to live. He was hooked up to machines that were keeping him alive and he could barely talk and he was, he was so weak. And he wanted to return to Christ because he was fearing dying without him. And of course, I opened my Bible, we read scriptures together, I led him to faith in Christ, and he asked Christ to forgive him and, and became a Christian. And at that moment, I believe he became that new creation. His name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life, meaning he's going to heaven. Okay, baptism does not save you, it's an act of obedience. But he grew up in that faith tradition that said, if you're not baptized, you don't go to heaven. Unfortunately, in the hospital, and actually I've never seen one in a hospital, unless maybe a Catholic hospital, they don't have baptismals in hospitals. And besides, he was in the ICU. So taking him down to a, uh, even a bathtub with wires and beepers and buzzers and breathing tubes and all that would have been impossible. So I talked to the nurse. She gave me a wash basin filled with a cup and some water, and I baptized him with that. I've also done that with Sid's babies in homes just to to help with the parents' grief. But I just say that because there can be some exceptions, but the rule is full immersion. So who qualifies for baptism? Again, it's John the Baptist who explains it. Those who have repented of their sinful life, who have turned from it, and are now following Jesus as one of his disciples. That's the qualification for baptism. And I want to emphasize this point right here. Because too often in modern Christianity, we've watered this down a lot. We talk about, oh, just accept Jesus into your heart and everything will be okay. Well, that's not in the Bible. 
Jesus didn't say, didn't pass, for example, didn't pass Matthew's toll booth and say, just believe in me, you'll be fine, and keep walking. What did Jesus say? Follow me. Become a disciple. Make that decision that I am going, that you are going to come after me. You are going to become a learner. You are going to put your life on hold. You're going to push this back here and enter into a new life with me. We're not supposed to accept Jesus into our heart. We're supposed to let Jesus change our heart. If I'm a sinner, I'm not inviting the king to come and live in this rundown slum of an unrepentant heart. I'm asking him to destroy that stubborn heart and make a new one. In Matthew 28, when Jesus gave the Great Commission, he did not say, go and just ask people to accept me into their heart, and I will come in and I'll be a little lamb and I'll just guide them and, and help them be nice to each other. No, he said, go forth and make disciples. Follow me. Follow me, he said. This is something we need to start living, especially in these last days. And let me be transparent. I struggle myself in this. And there's been parts of my life where I've fallen down in my understanding of what this means. But I've, the Holy Spirit's just impressed upon me lately. A disciple is someone who lays down everything from their past to follow Jesus. And this is why baptism is the first step of obedience and why it's so important as that first step in following Jesus as one of his disciples. I mean, you can go to an army surplus store and buy a uniform. You can buy the medals, you can buy the boots, shine them up a little bit, get the hat, walk around, call yourself a soldier. But are you a soldier? No. No, a soldier holds up their right hand and says, this I'll defend even if it means giving my life to do so. You're all in as a soldier. You can't call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ and refuse to do the first thing he asks of you to do after you repent of your sin and turn away from it to follow him. That's biblical Christianity. The Bible gives us those standing orders from Jesus right before he ascended to heaven. When he said, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. These aren't my words. I didn't make them up. They've been around for 2,000 years. These are the direct orders of Jesus Christ himself. And finally, I want to point out one more thing. And that's sanctification. Sanctification means to be made holy. It's a lifelong process as we yield to the Holy Spirit's influence in our life. We see as soon as Jesus came out of the water, the Holy Spirit came down on Jesus like a dove. Isn't that interesting? Because in Acts chapter 2, how did the Holy Spirit come? As fire. You ever wonder why? Well, 1 Corinthians 
chapter 3 says that God will judge every man's or every person's work with the fire of his holiness. Those who have lived for Christ will have their work survive that fire and they will live in eternity based on those and rewarded for those works. Those who didn't will be left with a pile of ashes. Says this, read it, 1 Corinthians 3. Even though they might be saved, they'll have nothing to be rewarded for in eternity. But this also shows why Jesus got the dove. There's no fuel to burn. There's no sin. There's nothing for, for the fire to, to touch and burn. Now, I love the fire of God in my life. But I hope eventually, and I know it probably won't happen this side of eternity, but I hope eventually he'll burn through my stubbornness, my pride, and my ego, and all my sin until there's nothing left to burn, and he comes down with the dove. That should be the heart of any Christian. Just something one, just something to think about this morning. But until that day, let's say God send the fire, amen? Let's all rise. Father God, we thank you, Lord. I thank you, Father, that you've brought us to this moment today of baptizing two people into the kingdom of God. We thank you, Father, that, that they have taken this step of obedience. We ask, Lord, that you bless it. We ask, Father, that you use both of them as mighty warriors for you in these last days. That you will give them the spiritual vigor and energy and discipline to stand for you no matter what life throws at them. Father God, we thank you for them. We ask, Father, that this just be two of many that we'll have in the future here. Father God, we thank you. We thank you, Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen.